You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to this edition of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Casey Zirkus, with the RSA Conference team. We are again covered in snow here in Massachusetts, which is Mother Nature's reminder that RSA Conference is just a few sleigh rides away. In the lead up to conference, we'll be talking with members of our program committee about their tracks. And today I'm so excited to be joined by John Elliott and Laura Ketzel, who worked on the privacy and data protection track. Before we get started, I want to remind you all that here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review us on your preferred podcast app so that you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I'd like to ask my guests to take a moment to introduce themselves before we dive into today's topic. John, over to you. Great. Good afternoon, Casey. Thank you. Uh, yeah, my name's John Elliott. I'm a security and privacy specialist or consultant. Um, I've worked as a CISO. Um, I have a, a background in privacy law as well. And I was on the program committee for this track this year. And we were glad to have you, Laura. Sure. Thanks very much for having me. I'm Laura Ketzel, and I am the head of research for Forrester Research in Europe. So I'm in charge of all of our research in Europe, but my own background is in cybersecurity. And I've been on the program committee for years, since 2013, I think, although don't quote me on that. And this year, I got to do primacy and data protection with John for a track, which was a treat. So thanks again. And again, always happy to have you joining us year after year. Both of you have been long-term friends of the program committee, and we appreciate the work you do so much. In noting that you both have worked on other tracks, um, I know, Laura, you've worked on privacy. John, you've worked on risk management. This year, we tried to sort of reframe some of our tracks and join together privacy and data protection. So what were your thoughts on this year's submissions and maybe even like your expectations of going into this track that is newly formed, combining privacy and data protection? What were sort of some of the submissions you were expecting to see? And uh, what were some of the thoughts on what you did see? One of the things, and all credit to John for pointing this out at the very beginning, that we were trying to balance was thinking about the RSA conference audience. And so the people who come to conference and who are listening to us right now, hopefully, and what kind of sessions they would find most useful in privacy and data protection. And John's contrast with this was, we don't need to have sessions that you could find at a privacy conference, for example. So instead, we need sessions that are geared for the security-focused audience, although as we know, the RSAC audience keeps expanding, right? But to think about the sessions as what would be most useful for the kind of canonical experience information security practitioner director who comes to RSA conference in the fields of privacy and data protection and also to balance uh, sort of having equal weight, as it were, for privacy and for data protection. So I think that was a thing that we started out thinking about. We obviously thought we would see a bunch of kind of 
privacy regulation and data protection and data sovereignty regulation around the world focused submissions, which we indeed did. And, you know, we had the usual RSA conference problem of having far more fantastic submissions than we could possibly accept. So we really approached it as how do we build kind of a balanced portfolio of privacy and data protection topics and depth and kind of level of sort of prerequisite knowledge for the audience that we have at RSA conference. John, is that fair? Yeah, that's that's a really good summation. I really want to echo the fact that before we did this podcast, I looked through my, oh, we have to have that session, we have to have that session, my list of how many we had. And I had 18 must-have sessions. And Casey's really cruel because she only let us have 10, I think it was. And I think I think you had about 18 must-have sessions as well. And look, luckily, the intersection was pretty strong. But between us, like, I think we could have had like privacy and data protection sessions running every day, and I'd have been happy to go to them all. Mm. Yeah, mm. We, we, we certainly, like, if, if you, I looked back at our initial list too. We each did have about 18 things that we thought we absolutely had to have in the track, which of course, if you can do the math for the 10 or 11 sessions that we got to pick, cause I think, I think John, uh, may have successfully argued for us to get one extra session at a push, uh, from the 10 we were originally allotted. So yeah, there's way more even sort of essential topics than we thought that we could, that we could have accommodated just through how much space we had. But I'm pretty pleased with where we ended up in terms of having topics like tokenization, like privacy by design, doing some privacy and data protection specific stuff with generative AI, understanding that there's you know more generative AI than you could shake a stick at in the uh, in the submissions for this year's RSA conference for sure. We've got colleagues who are doing the uh, artificial intelligence track, so leaving le- knowing which things belong in which track is a bit of an art rather than a science, I have to say. So sort of some negotiations about what belonged where I think were actually really useful also. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's a good problem to have and one that surely every program committee track had this year. There were, we had a record number of submissions with over 2,700 submissions. So there was so much quality content and, you know, we could run multiple RSA conferences with all of the submissions that we had. Um, and, you know, that would definitely make us happy. So it's a great problem to have. But I want to go back to you, John, with these 18 must have sessions. What was it about these? What did you love most about these sessions that you would want to see that you could sit in on? I, th- I think the first thing is just really echoing what Laura said was that, that I, I think of this as like there's a Venn diagram of security stuff and privacy stroke data protection stuff. And there has to be a clear intersection for it to be in our track. And there were lots that were like that. It was like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. So what, what, what really attracted me is I love case studies at RSA conference. When I've gone to sessions, the ones that people talk about what they did or what they learned from what they did really stops me making the same mistake in my own organization. So I love case studies, and we got a lot of really interesting privacy and security case studies. We got a lot that were around privacy-enhancing technologies, like tokenization. (laughs) There were even um, some great, and I hesitate then, because I just about to use the word great and data leakage prevention or DLP in the same sentence. But there were a number of proposals for sessions of, like, saying that DLP is not really a zombie technology and AI will resurrect it type. Uh, And they were great as well. And so it was really the breadth of it, Casey. There was lots of good stuff about what people were doing in that really interesting intersection of privacy and data protection and security technology. One general point that 
I always look for, because I know this is what I do when I attend sessions myself, because John and I are both RSA conference attendees also, is you want to make sure that the sessions that you pick are going to give the people attending the session something concrete they can do with what they're learning. And so that's why case studies are great, as John said, because as in, I can usually learn something from someone who's done something well or someone for whom something has gone horribly wrong. Now, uh, you generally find fewer of those, right? Because every, you know, they, what's the old cliche? Victory has a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan or something like that. And so (laughs) nobody loves to showcase the like, we tried this. It all went horribly wrong. And here's what we learned. But when you get that, that's actually one of the, in my view, most useful trajectories. Those are the money sessions. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me what went wrong and how did you address that? Yeah. Spoken like a security person, perhaps, you know, it's our job to figure out what went wrong or what's going to go wrong. But uh, you can learn certainly from both. And so whilst... I like a sort of the occasional, you know, make you think about what's going to happen in 15 years session. An RSA conference needs a few of those. The sort of ratio of those to sessions I can really go home and do something with, as they say, what I've learned from should be about 20%, 80%, where the 80% is like things I can go do stuff with. Mm, I love that. I love that. And, you know, we are definitely lauding all of the wonderful, strong submissions that came in, but certainly in the vast pool, there were maybe some clunkers. What, what were some of the <laughs> lackluster submissions that, um, and, and I ask not to be critical, but people take their heart and soul and put it into their submissions and we want them to be able to be accepted, right? So if there are ways that we can help them, you know, to our point of what went wrong, how can we help people improve their submissions? What maybe came off as a little lackluster that could be just tweaked a little bit to make it a more exciting selection? I'll take you at your word, Casey, that you also want the real clunkers as opposed to just the ones that, uh, that need a little bit of improvement. But <laughs> the, and I'm not going to like, I'm not going to name names here, people. So don't worry. The real clunkers are the ones where there's very little detail about what the session's actually going to be about. So you occasionally get these with panel submissions in particular. What you'll see is sort of, we are four fabulous, experienced panelists. You know, here are our bios, and this is our title, and, you know, three sentences about what the content of the session is going to be. A submission like that, I mean, I would certainly never accept just because I don't know if it's going to be any good. You haven't told me enough to be able to tell. Just telling me that you and your co-speakers are fantastically talented and have 25 years of experience in the field doesn't tell me whether you've actually thought through a really good panel on a topic. And the sort of three sentences of description that you've decided to write tell me that you're probably all just going to show up and riff about whatever you're thinking about that morning, which usually doesn't turn into a very good session. Mm. I was just remembering some of those panel sessions I'd been to that were quite like that, actually. I'd say, first of all, anything that was that you would have submitted to a, to like a privacy conference that has no security angle whatsoever, they're not clunkers, but they're not going to be of great interest to the RSA audience. Um, anything that's about like law and privacy with no clear security take on it, although there are some good clear security takes on the law and privacy topic, we didn't see any of those. You see a lot of people proposing theoretical models, not a case study of how they implemented a theoretical model. 
and those are less interesting than people's case studies. Uh, reading proposals, there are a large number where the proposal spends 80% of the words you're allowed to put in the, in the proposal describing the problem, not what you're going to talk about, how you fix the problem or your take on the problem. And you might have some really brilliant stuff to tell about that, but we can't get it from the proposal. We can't reach into to your brain to, to work out what that is. And finally, there are a couple of occasions where one person had proposed maybe six or seven different topics. And my feeling there is you're, you're probably not an expert in all seven of them. You might be a real expert in one or two, and that might be your absolute passion. The other five detract from it, because we don't know which one is the one that you are a real expert in, and you'll be an absolute super speaker and best speaker at RSA conference for. Probably one of them was, but we don't know which one that is. And so if you're tempted to submit lots to one track, or, or lots of proposals that will probably end up in the same track then I'd think really carefully about what it is you want to say at RSAC and what benefit you can provide to the attendees. Because in the programme committee, you know, there are a large number of sessions to go through. When we see five or six from one presenter, we're not sure where your skill set is. Mm. That is such great advice. I absolutely love that. And, you know, it's one that has reverberated across several different tracks. So I think it's definitely wisdom worth listening to. I want to go back to this, you know, you each had 18 submissions and yet the the entire track is only allotted 10, possibly 11. Um, so there are some gaps, right? There are 18 things that each of you wanted to listen to and then, you know, a smaller selection of those that actually make it to the stage. And I want to remind our listeners that we do have our RSAC 365 Cybersecurity Learning Program where we have webcasts and podcasts all year long. So what are the gaps that were not covered in the selections that you made in the privacy and data protection track that maybe might be great content for those submitters to share on a year-round agenda? That is an excellent question. I'm so glad we have the RSAC 365 uh, series because A, it's really wonderful to participate in, and B, because it gives us a place to put fabulous sessions that we don't have space for uh, in the conference in San Francisco, because that's one of the things we do with the sessions we wanted to see that we don't have room for, or we managed, I think to get the essential topics. Because like the the way John and I started was these are the topics we absolutely have to have in the track. And then that's always very helpful for me, at least when I go through the submissions, because I start with the, what are the, you know, what are the topics that John and I thought we absolutely had to have in the track? And then I tag the sessions in my like working spreadsheet to which of those topics that are in our view essential for the track, it's primarily related to. And then what I do usually is each, each of those topics gets a slot, as it were, and then you pick the best session on that topic for that slot. Now, occasionally, this year this did not happen, but in previous years, when building other tracks, I've had topics I thought were absolutely essential for which we either didn't get any submissions or didn't get any submissions that really kind of look like they were going to do what you wanted. And then like often what we'll do is we'll ask some of the submitters to say, Hey, we really would like 
a slightly different take on this or, you know, something different altogether, would you be interested in and do you have the right kind of skill set to do that instead? So I don't know if everybody knows that. That's why I mention it. So if there's something missing, like, believe it or not, even when you get 2,700 submissions, sometimes there's stuff missing. And so that the kind of program committee thinks is really important. And so we really will go to some of the people who've submitted and ask them if they'd be interested in doing something different to what they submitted so that it meets the thing that we wanted. But now I will stop talking about something else and answer the question Casey actually asked me, which is <laughs> one of the things that I sort of earmarked for RC365. There were some excellent, like what I would say are 101 level kind of privacy and security sessions. And we figured we had room for at most one of those in our track, but we could see how for security folks who are just learning about privacy in particular, there are some good fundamental sessions that they might really be interested in. And that's a great thing for RCC 365 to do because then folks can sort of study up on all that stuff prior to conference, as it were. And so come in, you know, ready for the 201 level material, as it were. Love it. John, any suggestions from you? We have some really interesting proposals for security and privacy of genomic or genetic data that we didn't have space for. And I think there's some really interesting movements in that area. So I, I think that's a definite RSA 365 one that I'd certainly watch. Some really interesting intersections of legislation, privacy and security that will be happening in the next year. I think some of it, there was a really interesting case at, at the European Court in December about what looks like appropriate security. We didn't get very many of these, but I'd like to see more sessions where we've got that that three-way Venn diagram intersection of law and regulation and privacy and security. Ooh, and there was one other area where we recommended some things for RSAC 365, which is, so John and I are both based in Europe, and there's lots of interesting data protection and privacy regulation and sort of codes of conduct and all kinds of things that are sort of headquartered, as it were, in our region. But we also know that 70-odd percent of RSA conference attendees are from North America. And so there is a bunch of really excellent content that's really helpful to everybody who's doing business in and based in Europe. But we didn't have room for all of it. And so that's a natural place to sort of have some virtual sessions for RSA C365. So for everybody who's interested in topics that are more specific to regions outside North America, we never have room for all of it. And so having it virtual so that everyone can attend, regardless mm. of whether they're able to make it to San Francisco or not, I think is a great use of the virtual program. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I remember there was a session on um, with GDPR and codes of conduct that we just didn't have room for, and, and it's like a small area, but it would be a, that, those type of sessions which are very focused on EU law. But again, that Venn diagram of law, privacy, and security would be great. Yeah, yeah, that's one yeah. of the ones I was thinking of that I'm really yeah. hoping we get in 365, because if we do, I'm going to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then it shall be so. So tell me, after all of this... What is it that you're most looking forward to about this track at RSA conference in May? Laura. We've got a couple case study sessions I'm really looking forward to seeing because the ones that we picked, 
assuming that the contents match what's on the tin, uh, which John and I will make sure of, because obviously one of the things you do as program committee members is review everybody's slides before they get to present them. What I'm looking for from a couple of those is some really granular learnings from the folks who've done really interesting things with data protection with and with uh, everybody's favorite DLP, as John said earlier, so that we can really bring some value that folks can use right away from the tracks. I'm really looking forward to see a couple of the case study sessions in particular. I won't tell you which ones. Yeah, I, I want to echo that. I think we've got some great case studies, um, especially case studies on using and deploying privacy enhancing technologies. Those are the ones I think I'm most looking forward to. I'm also looking, yeah, I'm looking forward to the, the will AI resurrect the DLP zombie session. That's not the title. <laughs> that's not the title of the talk. That's just my own view of DLP um, as a zombie technology. Um, and I think we've got a really good breadth of speakers as well. I think we've got some new speakers and some 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 proven speakers, and not just speakers from the states. Um, so I think we've got a I think we've got a really interesting group of speakers as well. Which so I'm looking forward to learning from them. Yeah, because one it. of the things we try to do is because if you're not careful when you're planning your track, you can sort of play it too safe and pick speakers who've spoken before who get really good scores who you know will do a good job and obviously you're going to want to select some of those people because they there's a reason they got really good scores and the chances are that they've submitted a really excellent session for the coming year as well but if you do that for your whole track or too often then you end up with the same people speaking at RSA conference every year and mm-hmm. I remember I can't remember what the stat is, but some non-trivial percentage every single year are people who've never spoken before. And so we've got a couple of first-time speakers in our track, and that's on purpose. We try pretty hard because there's so many great sessions that you you will have some great proposals by some first-time speakers. And it's absolutely worth accepting a couple of those because chances are they're going to be great. And then you'll have more great speakers for the RSA Conference universe. I love it. So before we wrap up, I would love to hear from each of you. What is it that I'm not thinking of? What matters most to you, to each of you, about privacy and data protection? John, let's start with you. Uh, Gosh, I still have a particular fetish. Um, Yeah, I'm going to, I thought that I'm going to call it that. I'm still really worried about what I talked about at my keynote at RSAC last year which is about the way that we're building websites by assembling JavaScript in the browser. And because there's no sandboxing between any bit of JavaScript in the browser, any JavaScript on the page can access and change any information on the page. And we're building more and more web apps, and we're building them from assemblies of JavaScript from all over the internet, from people we've never met, haven't done a security audit of, have no idea where they're sending the data to, probably haven't got binding corporate rules in place or standard clauses or anything. So from a privacy and security and data protection perspective, I still think this is, I think I described it as the box that's too frightening to open, so none of us are opening it. We had, we had, a, we had a session proposal, and I hope the people uh, who proposed the session agreed to participate. We have one session on that in our track, I'm hoping. Um, but that's still my, my, my worry that there'll be a horrendous data breach because of it that some of us saw was coming, but we won't do anything about it until afterwards. So that that's my so comforting. Thing that matters Very most. comforting, John. Sorry, Thank that you wasn't that. comforting. I know that wasn't comforting. 
Um, I th- but I think it's really interesting. You you see that there was a big case of this with 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 leaks of protected healthcare information from hospitals in the states to web analytics and tracking companies. Um, and Health and Human Services did some really interesting guidance on this. And now there's the, uh, and recently there's been an association of American hospitals who are now suggesting that HHS don't have authority to do that and that they want to use these tracking services and that it's a benefit. Um, and I think this is this is such an interesting and, and it for me it hits that three-way Venn diagram intersection of security and privacy and law and regulation and I, so that's what worries me and interests me why it's still my fetish <laughs> all right since we're since, since since this is an invitation to jump on a personal soapbox I will do the same and just say I was very pleased to see in addition to John's category of make dlp less terrible which is how i'd paraphrase that category of sessions which i'm all for we also had some sessions on a topic that's a kind of pet interest of mine which is data disposal which is deadly boring sounding but of course if you get rid of it then you don't have to protect it and you can't end up in court arguing about whether you did something wrong so i think the sort of inclination to collect all data forever because it might be useful someday is very, very strong among all technology and marketing and sort of customer service people everywhere. And of course, now that we have essentially limitless amounts of capacity to store data and all kinds of exciting opportunities to take bits of data that previously would have been very difficult to kind of put together and get any sense out of since we've got so many kind of powerful data science techniques and all the rest of it. The temptation to keep a bunch of stuff that you don't actually need is very, very strong. And so not just having rules about this kind of data can be disposed of after seven years kinds of things, which all of us have in various kinds of industry regulations and indeed in legislation in some places and so on, but rather thinking really critically about what things do we actually need to keep and what should we throw away permanently so that we don't have to spend the money to keep it securely and to encrypt it, to treat it properly, to control access to it and do all the things. So I think along with John, uh, that's another sort of neglected corner of our security, privacy and data protection world that I would like to see more people think about because it's a really simple way to make the universe of things that you have to worry about protecting smaller. And it seems to me that too few of us think about it as much as we should. So I'm all for data disposition frameworks and how to implement them and how to actually make them automatic so that people don't have to, you know, affirmatively make the decision to delete things. It's really fascinating though, because as you were explaining that, I I just kept thinking of, you know, the natural human issue there, right? That, you know, this is why shows like Hoarders and The Minimalist and Marie Kondo <laughs> can make millions of dollars because people have this tendency to hold on to stuff and clutter and keep things. And, you know, now it's transferred into our digital world as well. And we're just holding on to things unnecessarily. And while, you know, there can be policy to help implement the disposal of data, how are we going to convince the humans on the other side of, you know, wanting to hold on to that for some purpose someday to actually let it go? Um, I think that's really fascinating. And I've just now got this whole new vision of Laura as the Marie Kondo of um, 
data tidying. <laughs> I was going to say, now I'm going to have to clean up the junk drawer at home for sure. Uh, right. You know, who among us does not have, you know, the box of cables from who knows when and the the drawer of junk that you don't like to look in very right. often, etc. But right. yeah, we do that in our digital lives as well. And we do it on yeah. an industrial scale. And so... Yeah. This is what, and it's very hard, right? Throwing things away is difficult. That's why Marie Kondo has the whole, you know, say goodbye to the thing that no longer brings you joy. Like there's a whole ritual for it and so on. Right. And so that's why I'm a big fan of automatic data disposition. Cause if you have to be the person who pushes the button to delete things, that's actually right. very difficult. It's for never most going of us. anywhere. It's just going to go in the right. junk drawer. <laughs> exactly. Or the digital version thereof. Right. Right, right. The answer, of course, is that you have to tax data storage. And then no people. <laughs> Ooh. Well, because data storage used to be expensive. When I started in this industry, storage was expensive. And so you spent a lot of time pruning data and getting rid of data and, and compressing it before. You did all the things to make sure that you could, you had enough hard disk, but hard, remember when hard disks were a thing, you had enough hard disk space and enough tape backup space to do the stuff you needed to do. Now it's effectively cost free and limitless. That's why it's much easier not to make those decisions. So. The economist would say you have to create a cost of using data storage, which would be taxation, which would be funny. And, and sorry mm. for interrupting you, Casey. No, no, no. I love that. I love that. That's fantastic. John and Laura, thank you so much for being here. This was such a great conversation. Always appreciate uh, having the opportunity to chat with both of you. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. To find products and solutions related to privacy and data protection, we invite you to visit rsaconference.com forward slash marketplace. Here you'll find an entire ecosystem of cybersecurity vendors and service providers who can assist with your specific needs. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year round. And we look forward to seeing you all in May in San Francisco at RSA Conference 2024. Thank you.